Hello and welcome to Will We Make It Out Alive? I'm Amy, the poop detective. And I'm Jen, the magical mapper. This is season three, episode one From the Tree Canopy to the Prison Grounds, or the Origins of the Sustainability in Prisons Project. Season three is all about. The Sustainability in Prisons Project, otherwise referred to as SPP. How they bring education and training into the prisons to reduce recidivism and protect and enhance our environment. This season will be six or seven episodes long. We're not sure yet because numbers and math or something. Yeah. Mostly Jen, though. She doesn't know how many episodes she's making. (laughs) We'll be interviewing a variety of people from SPP as well as partners and individuals that have participated in the program. Although we would like to point out that we are missing the Department of Corrections perspective because we were unable to connect with them. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we would have loved to hear more directly from them as well. But in this episode... We are honored to interview Dr. Nalini Ned Carney, whose curiosity and out-of-the-box thinking led to the formation of SPP. She's so amazing, she even had a treetop Barbie made in her likeness. It's pretty cool. I think we're going to share an image in our show notes. I think so. We will also hear a little bit from Kelly Bush, the current co-director of SPP. Kelly will be joining us most, if not all episodes this season. She helped us out a ton and really helped us make connections with interviewees and provided a lot of background information and assistance. We couldn't have created this season without Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks, Kelly. Cat fact. Did you know that cats climb trees for a few different reasons, but mainly to escape danger and to be able to look down from their little perch up there? For prey and to assess their environment from a safe place. Mm -hmm. Most of the time they can get down on their own, but sometimes they struggle. And this is because of their curved claws, which makes them really great at climbing, but not so great at getting back down unless they go head first, which usually doesn't work that well because, you know, gravity and all that stuff. Speaking of climbing trees... We have so many great stories and perspectives for you this season, so we're going to cut our talking short in order to bring you more from our interviewees. You're welcome. Let's jump right into it and maybe even discover a little bit more about why Nalini likes to climb trees. Ooh. Today, we're very honored to welcome Dr. Nalini Netkarni to the podcast. Nalini is currently a professor of biology at the University of Utah, and is a former professor at Evergreen. According to her website, NaliniNedCarney.com, Nalini's research interests are on community and ecosystem ecology of tropical and temperate forest canopy organisms and interactions, the effects of forest fragmentation on biodiversity and community function, and the development of database tools for canopy researchers. She has also pioneered bringing science education, conservation projects, and nature imagery to the incarcerated. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So where did the dream of the Sustainability in Prisons project start? Well, I guess I would have to say it started when I was a little kid. I really haven't had any familial or friends connection to incarceration, but I always used to worry about people in jail and people in prison. And 
One of the things I worried about most because of my own love and need for contact with nature was the fact that people in prison have, from what I could tell, no contact with nature at all. Just the built environment of the prisons is all concrete. Prison yards are basically bare of vegetation for security purposes. Mm -hmm. And so it always seemed to me as I was growing up that one of the groups in the public that would most need contact with nature and also with science education would be those who are incarcerated. And I really didn't have any plan. I wasn't aligned with any prison rights groups or anything like that. But I figured that as an academic scientist and one who's very involved with environmental research, trying to carry out conservation in innovative ways and being inclusive of people who can contribute to conservation and ecological restoration, it just seemed like a natural step to say, well, who needs it most? And it was obvious to me that, that those who are incarcerated, who don't have access to nature, who don't have access to education about science and the environment would be the people who would be perhaps most receptive. There wasn't any sort of history of that, so I, I actually wasn't sure if they would laugh at me or whether this would be impossible or whether it would be entirely outside the realm of possibility. But, you know, you never start anything by trying to second guess like what's possible and what isn't. And That's so it was really so just a matter of knocking on doors and asking. And as it turned out, the prison system, at least the prisons that I started working with in Washington state, were actually open to that. So that was my portal into this world of bringing science education, conservation projects, and nature imagery to people who might need it more than anybody. So that kind of goes right into our next question, which is how did it evolve from this idea to the reality, especially since it had never been done before, basically, right? Right. Well, I guess I began thinking about my own research area. As a scientist, I'm deeply involved with research about the forest canopy, wanting to understand the mainly unknown world of the organisms that live in the forest canopy, especially the canopy plants. And I lived in the Pacific Northwest for 20 years, and I became aware of one of the environmental issues was about harvesting what was called secondary forest products, things like clipping ferns and salal, but also gathering moss, moss that grows on trees and branches of trunks of the primary rainforests of Washington state. And the research that I myself have done and other people like Pat Muir at Oregon State University has shown that actually when you remove these canopy dwelling mosses and plants from branches and trunks of trees, they don't automatically grow back. In fact, they take decades to grow back. Wow. So this idea of harvesting these, quote, secondary forest compounds, which leave trees in the forest, which of course is wonderful, but it turned out that the harvesting of mosses in particular is not sustainable. And so I began thinking, well, how can I counteract that? How can I mitigate the potential negative effects of losing these mosses, which are important for birds who make nests out of them, for nutrient interception and retention, for just maintaining the overall biodiversity of these remarkable forests? How could I contribute to that? And I thought, well, maybe if I learn how to grow mosses, then the horticulture trade, which is actually using these mosses for ornamentation and packing bulbs and so forth, maybe they could buy these sustainably grown mosses instead of ripping them off of branches and trees in the wild. But nobody knew about how to do moss horticulture. I mean, even in the moss gardens of Japan, where people cultivate mosses, they basically take them from the wild rather than growing them themselves. So I knew that it would take some research in the horticulture of these mosses, and that sort of clicked suddenly, like, oh, maybe I could enlist the help of people who are incarcerated to help me learn how to grow these canopy-dwelling mosses. And then that led me to start knocking on prison doors and talking to the superintendents and the wardens and the inmates themselves and saying, how about if we partner on this? I need a place that has a lot of space. I need people who have time. Growing mosses doesn't take sharp instruments. You can just use your hands and 
actually that contact with the living plants, the smell of the mosses, the feel of the mosses, I think would be really wonderful for people who have been denied access to nature. And so after knocking on a few doors of prisons and not getting much of a positive reaction, more like, like, what the hell are you doing here? This is a prison, not a greenhouse. I found this one really wonderful prison, the Cedar Creek Correctional Center, which is a minimum medium security men's prison in Rochester, Washington, just 30 minutes away from the Evergreen State College where I was teaching. And so the prison superintendent at that time, his name was Dan Pacholke, was quite forward thinking. He was interested in sustainability. He was interested in improving the lot of the inmates that he was protecting and taking care of. And so he said, well, you know, it can't hurt. It might keep the guys busy. Sure, bring on the mosses. And so my students and I gathered mosses with a permit from the Olympic National Forest. We brought in these bags of mosses. We trained the participating incarcerated people how to identify and separate them into species. We did some hanging bags with mosses. We did some flats. I taught the men how to make measurements, how to take subsamples. We would dry them and weigh them at Evergreen. And then every month we would come back and say, hey, This species grew faster than this species. Let's continue our observations. And after 18 months, we actually had some really cool results about which species of mosses had grown the fastest under these conditions of cultivation and captive rearing, so to speak, of these mosses. And what we found was that the men involved, both the inmates, but as well the officers and the administrators were really enthusiastic about what this little pilot project had produced. The men were very enthusiastic about it. They constantly were present. They always showed up for their work. They wrote and took notes in the little notebooks and pencils that I gave them. They wanted to know what the results would be. And most of all, I think what was important both to me and to the administrators was that the inmates were having the sense of contribution, that even though they were incarcerated, even though they had been rendered almost completely powerless in terms of the societal meaning of what is it to be a human being, what is it to be a person in our society, they still understood that they were able to contribute to this question of how do we increase the sustainability of harvesting of mosses. And so they would often ask me, hey, professor, I'm really contributing to conservation, aren't aren't I? And I would always reassure them and say, yes, you are. You are contributing to what we want to know in order to save those mosses and to preserve the integrity of these old growth forests. And so that in turn led to their asking, well, are there other projects we could work on? Are there other ways we could start learning about contributing to the environment? And that's when I realized that what we were really doing was something far more powerful than just asking and answering a tiny scientific question of how do you grow mosses? We were involving a group of people who didn't have access to science education, didn't have access to nature, and instead were providing them with that opportunity to listen, to learn, to respond, to provide feedback and to contribute to something that was bigger than themselves, bigger than that prison they were incarcerated in, and something as big, really, as as the earth itself. And so that then led to other collaborations that ensued, for example, with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife to rear the Oregon Spotted Frog. We reached out to the Nature Conservancy for the men to start rearing over 300,000 plugs of rare prairie plants for ecological restoration at Fort Lewis. We started working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to train the women who are incarcerated at the Mission Creek Correction Center to rear the Taylor Checker Spot Butterfly, which is a federally listed butterfly that has been declining across the remaining prairie habitats in Washington State and other parts of the West. And so all of this was accompanied by monthly lectures that we also carried out. I would bring in a faculty member from Evergreen or some other university who would give an hour-long lecture about his or her research, what his or her journey was in becoming a scientist. 
And we just found remarkable receptivity to both the scientists as well as the opportunity to contribute through conservation. So it started with a very tiny project addressing a very small, somewhat obscure question with respect to horticulture. But that then expanded into this larger picture of involvement of those who are incarcerated, both in contributing to conservation and ecological restoration, but also gaining information, gaining science knowledge content, and building and developing relationships with the scientists themselves. What parts of this project are you most proud of? Well, I have to say that I started this program myself with Dan Pacholke and with others at the Evergreen State College and the Washington Department of Corrections. And in 2011, I left the Evergreen State College and moved on to the University of Utah, where I'm a faculty member and where I've started some similar programs here in Utah. And so the work of the SPP has really been carried on by the others who followed me, Carrie Leroy and, of course, Kelly Bush and Carl and all the other incredible members and graduate students and undergraduate students that Evergreen has provided in the Washington Department of Corrections has has continued and expanded this work. So I have to say that I'm proud of initiating it, but I really want to give credit to the people who have continued and expanded and reinforced it and improved it, I I would say, um, over the years. Mm -hmm. But in looking back on that sort of initial foray into it, I guess what I'm most proud of is just planting this idea that everybody can contribute to conservation. Whether you're out like me in academia and have all the resources and privilege in the world to carry out conservation efforts or ecological restorations, or whether you're a community member who works on a citizen science project in his or her spare time, or if you are incarcerated and held in a space that lacks conservation and lacks educational opportunities, you too can contribute to conservation. And I think The demonstration of that, the working through these projects, the working through the security measures, the getting of IRBs, you know, this human review board permissions to carry out work with people who are considered vulnerable populations like the incarcerated. All of that work, all of that effort, all of that attention to detail, all of that nervousness about things that might screw up and cause some sort of terrible accident, I think is really worth it because it has served, I think, as an inspirational model for people working in conservation and ecological restoration to know, to be certain, to be able to point to a model that says, hey, if those guys and those women and those youth in custody who are incarcerated can contribute to conservation and overcome all of those barriers and obstacles that exist, then surely we can enlist the help of faith-based groups or football players or hunters or you know any number of public groups who may or may not think of themselves, or we may not think of them as conservationists, but that they too can have agency in this most important work going on that will enhance the environmental work that needs to be done to face the challenges that we are facing now. Just so empowering for incarcerated individuals, but also like you're saying, thinking of how this could be applied or or how we can think out of the box to try to access other groups that we might not necessarily think of as conservationists. Like it's Mm -hmm. so cool. That's exactly right, Amy. As we developed the SPP, one thing that we constantly talked about was, hey, you know, this could work not only with prisons, but this could work in other nature-deprived environments. For example, senior assisted living centers. My mom, 97 years old, lived in an assisted living center for several years before she died this April. She loved nature and she loved looking out the window at the trees outside her room, but she was in a wheelchair and she was just, you know, she couldn't get out there herself. And so this idea of taking these conservation projects, tweaking them so that people in senior assisted living centers, for example, or people in cubicle offices. I mean, I've got this great office where I can look out at the mountains of Salt Lake Valley 
and feel replenished every time I look out the window. But I think of the millions of people who are working in cubicles, who are working in office spaces without windows, who are working in inner city locations. You know, I worry to death about toll booth operators who are just eight hours a day are constantly involved with traffic and have really no access to nature at all. And so I think that if we can distill the precepts, the processes, the protocols that we have been able to develop in the last 15 years of working with incarcerated people in correctional institutions, I think at least some of that would be translatable to other environments, other built environments where similarly people don't have access to nature. And to me, that's a very exciting thing um, that we would learn, in fact, from the incarcerated situation, which we normally think of as just like this black hole of horror. And and it is in many ways a black hole of horror. But here's one little bright spot, I think, that we can extend and bring to other perhaps dark holes that don't have access to nature and, and, and apply what we've learned there. Such a great point. Yeah. How do you still engage with the program? In terms of my engagement with this SPP, I'm in touch with Kelly and with others at SPP. We've been co-editing and co-writing scientific papers, peer-reviewed papers for the literature that's based both on my work here in the state of Utah, work that's gone on at SPP in Washington State, and also some of the projects that we've been able to do nationally. For example, here's a collaborative project that we did a couple of years ago. NASA, our space agency, is very interested in education and outreach and really bringing the remarkable things that NASA does in terms of space exploration and understanding astronomy and the cosmos and so forth, wanting to bring that to every single person who lives in the United States. And of course, NASA produces these amazing educational resources that you and I can just go to the web and download any number of (laughs) photos from the Hubble telescope and so forth. But people who are incarcerated don't have that freedom to do that. And so NASA provided us some funds to bring NASA scientists to the incarcerated. And so in 2016, we took this sort of traveling show of NASA scientists to speak about the topic of astrobiology. That is the question of how did life originate in the universe and how did it originate on planet Earth? I mean, these are big questions. These are fantastic questions for every human being to think about. But especially when you think about it, they might be especially important for people who are incarcerated, who have time to reflect on the big questions in their lives. Very often, people who find themselves in prison or jail or in a juvenile detention center find themselves in a reflective mode, and they have time to think. They're they're away from some of the other pressures that concern them so much. And so what we found was that when these NASA scientists showed up in Washington state, in Utah, in Ohio, and in Florida state prisons, we got audiences that were so engaged, so interested in the material that was presented by these NASA scientists. And so we carried out evaluations. We did pre and post lecture surveys. Uh, We had an IRB for this, so we could use this for research purposes. And so the SPP in Washington state provided us access to prisons that they had worked with. I provided access to prisons in Utah. We found collaborators in Ohio and in Florida. And so we were able to do this sort of grand tour, visiting prisons to talk about astrobiology. And we wrote up a paper for the journal Astrobiology, and Kelly was one of the co-authors. And so we've done that a number of times where we've collaborated with joint projects, as well as disseminating what we have collectively done to the greater scientific and social science community. Kelly and I also, every now and then, we'll just sort of visit each other. We'll get on the phone with each other when something comes up. We often share resources. If there's a media person that's interested in this whole topic of bringing science and conservation 
to the incarcerated. We've collaborated just in terms of exchange of resources and dissemination opportunities so that we can augment the work that we've done both individually as well as collectively. Is there a sustainability in prisons in Utah? Yes. Well, it's not quite the same, but because Utah is somewhat different than Washington, we tend to have a much more conservative political scene here than Western Washington, especially. But when I got here in 2011, one of my big priorities was to set up a similar kind of prison program here in Utah, where I've chosen to make my home. So I began working at the Draper State Prison, which is our major state prison here. It has about 6,000 incarcerated people. We only have really two major state prisons, and Draper is the large one. So we started a monthly lecture series there, just as we did up in Washington State. I've been recruiting scientists, graduate students, and faculty members, as well as community scientists, to give monthly lectures, which we, again, evaluate with pre- and post-lecture surveys. We've also instituted a number of conservation projects, very similar to the to SPP in Washington, with the Salt Lake County Jail. So we've had a number of projects there. One of them was to collaborate with the Utah Division for Wildlife Services. They are very interested in creating what they call refuge ponds for this little fish, which is state endangered. It's called the least chub. And so their approach to conservation is to have these refuge ponds around the state. This fish is threatened by an introduced mosquito-eating fish, and it sort of outcompetes that fish. And so these refuge ponds then can supply a refurbishment or a replenishment of the native species when one of those populations is extirpated locally. Hmm. So we collaborated with the Division of Wildlife Services. The Salt Lake County Jail provided a half acre of land in which we dug a pond. And then we at the University of Utah, my crew with what we call INSPIRE, the initiative to bring science programs to the incarcerated, provides lectures that go along with the pond. So the inmates are responsible for feeding the fish, for counting the fish twice a year, for doing water quality measurements. And we provide lectures on things like macroinvertebrates of aquatic habitats, bird identification guides because the men come out and they watch the birds that come to the pond and so forth. We've also had projects that involve growing sagebrush for enhancement of sage grouse habitat. Some of the men have built nesting boxes for the American kestrel which is a bird that has been declining across North America. And we've also carried out the raising of milkweed to create way stations for the migrations of the monarch butterfly. Mm. So all of those then have been sort of continuations and expansions of what happened at SPP. One thing that we've added on to that that SPP has not yet been able to do is to work with juveniles who are incarcerated. So we work now with five juvenile detention centers, youth in custody who range from about age 13 to 21, spend anywhere from a few days to many months inside these detention centers. And we provide lectures, we provide art science workshops, we provide conservation projects, we provide the opportunity for the students there to comment on environmental issues. And so it's really been a wonderful extension of what we've done with the adult populations now for youth in custody. And that work has been wonderfully supported by the Utah State Board of Education, because in Utah, youth in custody are under the aegis of, you know, regular kids. They're entitled to compulsory education until the age of 18. Mm -hmm. And so these students who are incarcerated in youth detention centers have regular teachers that are assigned to them by their school districts, but we are there to augment and to enhance the science offerings for these students. Another cool project, you know, once we started peeling away the onion layers of SPP, <laughs> yeah. we were like, there's so much stuff going on. And it's right. amazing, really, for how few people are involved in the court. It is amazing. It, how much it is. is accomplished in these programs. Right. 
hearing that you're bringing this to other prisons and other states. It's very exciting, I think. And Thanks. It's great. Is there anything else you would like to add? I guess I would add that this is happening in Washington. It's happening in Utah. But there are other prisons around the country that have sort of taken on pieces of this. And we would really love to see this continue to expand. Each of us who is working at our own state level kind of feels like, oh, my God, my hands are so full. I can right. hardly <laughs> think about how we might have. But there's also tremendous interest. Probably I'd say once a month, I'll get an email or a text or a letter, either from an incarcerated person who's heard about us through media or a radio program or a podcast or someone overseas. I just actually got a note from somebody in Naples, Italy, who's really interested in starting this kind of a program in her prison. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we could somehow muster the resources that would allow us to clone ourselves (laughs) and to spread this out, I think that this is actually has the potential for significantly shifting the way we think about mass incarceration away from this horrible black hole where there's just so much injustice that is deeply, deeply embedded in the system Mm -hmm. to incarceration being could be considered a place to start anew, right. to give some new right. chances, to provide training, to provide inspiration, to provide capacity. To provide a way for them to feel valued as a member of society. Exactly. And so I think that's the long-term dream. And I think we can move towards it bit by bit. And I think people like you, Amy and Jen, who are disseminating this are playing an incredibly critical role in moving this forward because if people don't hear about it, they won't know enough about it to shift away from the idea that all incarcerated people are bad or stupid or don't care about anything because that is not what we have found. Mm -hmm. And that is also true of the administrators and the officers, I have to say. Maybe this isn't true of every prison administrator (laughs) nor every prison officer, but Mm -hmm. all of those that I have encountered so far, and I've been doing this for 15 years, I have found that Nearly every prison administrator, if you scratch the surface of that person, you find a social worker, you find an educator, you find a humane heart that really wants the best for these people who have made mistakes and have had the kind of background that has led them to be housed inside these prison and jail walls. But that doesn't mean that they're punitive or that they're evil or that they're sadistic. And I had to learn that because I went into this thinking You know, the sort of cool hand Luke, horrible prison wardens who have nothing but revenge and violence on their minds. Well, and especially 15 years ago when you started this. I mean, now it's obviously, I feel like it's more in the light and social justice is a much bigger deal. But then it it sure wasn't. Yeah. So I'm not saying that everybody who's employed in the system of mass incarceration is an angel that could be, you know, Mother Teresa in another life. I'm just saying that... When you approach an institution like a jail, like a prison, with the attitude that this is an opportunity, this could be a place, this could be an incubator for something that's positive instead of negative, sometimes that comes true. And I think Kelly and Carl and Dan Pacholke and I and my students and my staff would nod their heads and say, yep, that's what we have found too. So I would encourage people to approach the world of incarceration, I mean, retaining this idea that things have to change because it's a broken system that is incredibly unjust, but that there are opportunities and the potential for improving it. And I think that we can all work for that. And part of that is just becoming aware that this kind of thing is possible. So I really thank you for your efforts to disseminate this. Well, and thank you so much for joining us today. We asked Kelly Bush to expand on a couple of things Nalini brought up, so let's hear from her now. 
Nalini mentioned an IRB a couple of times when we talked to her. Can you tell us what that is? IRB stands for Institutional Review Board. And anyone doing research with human subjects or even animal subjects usually needs to go through an institutional review board to look at their research and to make sure that that research is being done in a way that's ethical and that meets the standards. And so in particular, working with incarcerated people, they're considered vulnerable populations. So incarcerated people, children, folks that may have mental health issues or health issues are all considered vulnerable populations. We have, unfortunately, a history in our country of doing experiments and things with incarcerated individuals that were not ethical or in their best interest. And so these rules were put in place for protection. And so anytime that you want to do research with incarcerated individuals, you go through a human subjects review, which is administered by an institutional review board or IRB. They evaluate your research to make sure that you're not causing harm to the incarcerated population and that they can opt in or out of that research. But why do they need one for this project? What's the research being done? Anytime you're doing any sort of evaluation, we do administer pre and post surveys. Our surveys are to look at what they call quality assessment and quality improvement. And so what we're doing is we're asking the incarcerated population about their experience in our programs and getting their feedback on how we may improve their experience And so even for those types of surveys, you have to go through human subjects review. We've also done other research with people like Nalini that includes surveys, but also look at those data to figure out if folks are maybe more engaged in science, pre and post participation in these programs, if they know more about science. So there's numerous questions we may ask to understand the effectiveness of our programs. Anytime you're doing that, you have to get institutional review board, human subjects review. Gotcha. Thank you. I think that definitely answers the question a little more. So it looks like the Sustainability in Prisons Project was the first of its kind, but many states have started similar programs. Can you tell us more about connections with other states and countries? So it's one of the really fun parts of the job to hear from people all over the country and in fact, all over the world and to learn from them too, right? So as people have picked up our model, it gives us the chance to learn about improvements that they make to it and to learn about how they've adapted it to fit their respective states or their respective countries and and the issues that they may be facing. It also helps us to have a network. We're not doing this work alone anymore. right? And so we get to collectively have a conversation and support each other. In particular, in our country, there's really been just over the last, I would say, four or five years, there's been a lot, a lot more programs. And so we're now talking about how to work together for shared resources and shared goals. There's a collaboration on the West Coast right now of different organizations that I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel so honored that we get to work with these other organizations that I've admired for a long time and that, you know, we're partnering to try to find common ground. We also have differences. And so we get to learn from each other's differences. So yeah, it's been really, really lovely to see it grow and to be able to learn from others as we build this movement. Great. What are some of the other states and countries that you've supported with resources? If we're talking about international, we've had visitors from the UK and Australia. We've had contacts in Zambia and Kenya and Africa. Wow. We've had contact from Moldova. Oh, Korea, or I'll never forget one time speaking with somebody who was actually working in North Korea on vermicomposting. Oh, wow. And was looking to a manual that our incarcerated educators had created. So 
it was just a really amazing wow. thing where they were saying, gosh, we're trying to start this Roma composting program to address some of the significant food access issues here. And it looks to us like this manual created by these incarcerated individuals in SPP is one of the best resources we've seen. And, you know, may we wow. have permission and may we speak with them. So those have been some of the really great international contacts. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I should say that was an NGO operating in North Korea, not like the North uh, Korean government, to just be clear. <laughs> right? <laughs> I make that clear. Like, we weren't, like, collaborating with the North Korean government. <laughs> Good point. Good point. And then here in the U.S., we work a ton with Oregon, with the Institute for Applied Ecology. They have a sustainability in prisons project. And then they've branched out and work within multiple Western states particularly on a shrub step program that they offer in multiple Western prisons. And then in California, there's been a great collaboration with the Insight Garden Program and many other states. You know, we've been talking a lot to Massachusetts, trying to learn from them about some of their food access and gardening, prison garden stuff that they do so well. So I am so grateful to be in community in this work because for the first few years when I first started, there wasn't really anyone else to look to and to say, hey, how'd you mm -hmm. deal with this? Or What'd you learn about that? Or how'd you overcome this challenge we're having? So I love that we get to do this with others now. Yeah, that's, that's great. So there you have it. The end of season three, episode one. We hope you have sustained and learned your way through and that we have yet again inspired you to make it out alive. Out alive. We were so honored that Nalini took time out of her busy schedule to talk to us about SPP's beginnings. It's so exciting to hear how it has been replicated and expanded in other states and her ideas on other settings that could benefit from this type of environmental education program. We'd also like to thank Kelly for explaining IRBs and talking about some of the exciting knowledge sharing happening between states and countries with similar programs. Please join us for our next episode, where we will be hearing from James Jackson, who works with SVP and the Department of Corrections as Education and Reentry Navigator, helping match prospective formerly incarcerated students with educational institutions in the South Sound that most align with their needs. We will also hear more from Kelly Bush, as we mentioned, she's probably going to be in about every episode about what the Sustainability in Prisons project is and isn't. Episode 2 will be released in two weeks on June 21st. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Please let us know what you think at outalivepodcast.com or facebook.com forward slash will we make it out alive. Until next time, will, will we, we make, make it, it out, out alive? alive? This is Amy the Poop Detective. Bye. And goodbye from Jen, the magical mapper. <laughs>